Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and this week we'll be talking with Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. He's the Fuad and Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, the former National Security Advisor to U.S. President Donald Trump, and author of Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. General McMaster and I will talk about his book, Battlegrounds, the Trump administration's record in the Middle East, how HR's experiences in two wars in Iraq shaped his approach to Iraq and the region, and what he would advise the next administration, whether it be Donald Trump or Joe Biden, in dealing with Iran and the Middle East. My conversation with HR McMaster begins after this short break. I think it would be a mistake if it is a Biden administration for them to re-enter what was a really flawed agreement. In fact, what I think is a political disaster masquerading as a diplomatic triumph. And what's wrong with the deal is, first of all, it just postponed Iran gaining a threshold uh, capability with the, the sunset clause. And then it had real problems in the area of verification. It didn't prohibit big components of programs that could pose a grave threat to all of us, in particular the, the missile program. And so it would be a huge mistake to resurrect that flawed deal. And I think what's immensely important now and what the biggest accomplishment of the Trump administration has been is to put the economic pressure on the regime to force a choice. And, and ultimately, of course, it will be up to the Iranian people to voice a desire to change the nature of their government. But what I think we ought to recognize is that until the Iranian regime ceases its permanent hostility, a conciliatory approach just won't work. That was General H.R. McMaster, who will be joining us in just a moment. I'm going to forego my usual commentary at this point in the podcast and get right into the introduction of our guest. H.R. McMaster is a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy, and he received a Ph.D. in American history from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. His Ph.D. thesis was critical of American strategy and military leadership during the Vietnam War, and that dissertation served as the basis for his first book, Dereliction of Duty, which is widely read the U.S. military and a mainstay for courses on U.S. military history. McMaster served his country as commander in wartime in Afghanistan and twice in Iraq, and we'll be talking with him about how those experiences of combat in both Iraq wars informed his approach to that country and to the region. From 2014 to 2017, General McMaster designed the Future Army as director of the Army Capabilities Integration Center and deputy commanding general of the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command. In 2017, U.S. President Donald Trump appointed General McMaster as his national security advisor. I could go on. General McMaster has a long list of decorations and awards for his distinguished military service and many accomplishments. For more than two decades, he has been involved in military strategy and policymaking in the Middle East. Army Chief of Staff General Martin Dempsey remarked in 2011 that McMaster was, quote, probably our best brigadier general. 
McMaster made Time's list of the 100 most influential people in the world in April 2014. H.R. McMaster is now the Fuad and Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, and he is the author this year of Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World, which we'll be talking with him about. And it's a book about how to reshape American national security strategy to meet the challenges of this century. Our conversation about the Middle East with General H.R. McMaster begins now. H.R., welcome to On the Middle East. Hey, thanks, Andrew. It's great to be with you. Great to have you with us. Let's get right into it. We're talking during the final stretch of a U.S. presidential election campaign, which will likely have an impact on U.S. policy in the Middle East. And probably the biggest challenge the next administration will face in the region is Iran. Now, you have two chapters and battlegrounds on the threat and challenge from Iran. You were not a fan of the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, and you explain why in your book, writing that, quote, while the JCPOA was presented as a major turn in American policy, in fact, it was consistent with a long history of errors and illusions. Now, as national security advisor, you tried to hold off withdrawing from the Iran deal, however, until the administration had a new Iran strategy in place. Former Vice President Joe Biden is criticized with withdrawal from the Iran deal and if elected would rejoin if Iran is in compliance. And President Trump has said consistently he's open to a new, better deal on Iran. How do you assess the Trump policy on Iran? And whoever is elected, would you advise against re-entering the deal? And if not, how to deal with Iran? Is a deal even possible? Well, th hey, thanks, Andrew. Well, I, I think that we make a, a mistake when we consider policy actions toward Iran without considering two fundamental dynamics. The first of these is the ideology that drives the regime, you know, the, the ideology of the revolution, and, and then the related, uh, the, the related factor that Iran has been fighting a 40-year-long proxy war uh, against the great Satan, the United States, the little Satan, Israel, the Arab monarchies, and the West broadly. And so what I argue in battlegrounds is that we have to force a choice. We have to force the Iranian regime to make a choice to, to either stop proxy war and be treated like any other nation uh, or to continuous activities and, and, and remain in isolation economically. You know, Andrew, I wanted, to, I wanted to stay in the deal to keep the conversation about the Iranian regime and, and, its, and its behavior. And, and I felt that once we pulled out, the conversation would be about us. I wanted us to be able to, to sanction Iran's behavior outside of the regime, hold them to the deal uh, with, with you know, and then and then over time try to correct the flaws in the deal. Well, I mean, when once we pulled out, of course, I don't think that's feasible any longer. But I think it would be a mistake if it is a Biden administration for them to re-enter what was a really flawed agreement. It was a political disaster masquerading as a as a diplomatic triumph. And what was wrong with the deal is, first of all, it just postponed uh, Iran gaining a threshold uh, capability with the, the sunset clause. And then it had real problems in the area of verification. It didn't prohibit big components of, of, of programs that could pose a grave threat to all of us, in particular the, the missile program. And so it would be a huge mistake to resurrect that flawed deal. 
And I think what's immensely important now and what the biggest accomplishment of the Trump administration has been is to put the economic pressure uh, on, on the regime to force a choice. And, and ultimately, of course, it will be up to the Iranian people uh, to, to, to voice a desire to change the nature of their government. But what I think we, we ought to recognize is that until the Iranian regime ceases its permanent hostility, a conciliatory approach just won't work. Let's talk for a minute about Saudi Arabia. You write in your book about the high hopes the Trump administration had for partnership with the kingdom, but those hopes were dashed, as you explained, by some of the actions of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. You were with President Trump on a pretty dramatic trip to the kingdom, the president's first Middle East trip, and you write that, quote, in the Middle East, partners can be as vexing as adversaries, but sustained engagement and a willingness to sanction human rights abuses or support for extremists and terrorist organizations are foundational to long-term strategy in the region. Now, what's your ver verdict on the future of U.S. policy towards Saudi Arabia? How do you keep the kingdom in the camp of partner in dealing with Iran, extremist groups, energy policy, for example? And in the meantime, addressing human rights and other concerns, such as you know the outrage over the murder of uh, journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Right. Well, I, I think we ought to have a goal in mind, and that goal should be that Saudi Arabia become part of the solution across the, the Middle East instead of instead of part of the problem. And as you know, since the 1970s, really mainly in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s, it, it was the it was the the kingdom's proselytization. Of, of a, a warped interpretation of Islam, an extremist version of Islam that was used as a, as a basis for radicalizing impressionable young people and then enlisting them in, in physical jihad uh, against their fellow Muslims uh, and, and against, uh, against everybody else, right? So who did not adhere to their narrow uh, and a perverted interpretation of, of Islam. So I think that I think the the you know the question is can the regime become a force for good in the world? I think it can, and this was the, you know this this was the purpose of the of President Trump's visit. Of course, Andrew, everybody everybody thought in, in 2017, what the heck is Donald Trump doing going to Riyadh for his first trip? They thought this was difficult to understand. But if you go back and read President Trump's speech and King Salman's speech, these were landmark speeches. As it turns out, they were aspirational, but they were also practical in, in, in connection with the establishment of, of a, an institution for, for countering radical Islamist ideology, uh, as well as a, a multinational effort to cut off terrorist and extremist funding. Both those, those efforts have, have borne some fruit, I think, and, and are, 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 are worth continuing to pursue. And of course, as you mentioned, though, there, there have been some significant significant disappointments in, in connection with uh, the, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, a, a U.S. resident and a, and a journalist, uh, as, as well as, the, as, as Mohammed bin Salman's means of consolidating power. Now, Andrew, you may understand it, but I just don't understand the politics within the Saudi royal family. But I, I do hope that they will shift in favor of reform, will continue some of the reforms that the crown prince has initiated in terms of, of uh, reforms associated with, with women's rights, for example, in the kingdom, reforms associated with no longer promoting uh, this ideology that can be used as, as, as a justification for 
for terrorist actions. HR, let's talk about Turkey and battlegrounds. You write that, quote, improved cooperation may not be possible. A strategy for the region should therefore consider how to mitigate the loss of Turkey as an ally while moving towards a transactional relationship. Tell us how you see where U.S.-Turkey relations are and how you see them progressing. I'm uh, sad about it. <laughs> uh, I think that that uh, Turkey's drift away uh, from from Europe and the United States and, and the West has been maybe the, the greatest geostrategic shift since the end of the Cold War, and it's it's not in our interest. And so what what I what I hope to see is that hopefully President Erdogan would realize that you know that 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 he is actually acting against Turkish interests when he aids and abets the Russians. I mean, hopefully he's having some buyer's remorse about that relationship as now he is engaged through his proxies against Russian proxies in Idlib, in Libya, and now in Nagorno-Karabakh. And I, what I'm concerned about, obviously, with Turkey as, as well, is the degree to which uh, Turkey continues to, you know, to use, I think, its, its fight against, uh, against the PKK as a way to rally nationalist sentiment. Uh, as well as now an increasingly anti-Western and anti-U.S. propaganda in, in a media that is controlled now by the state. You know, the AKP has been very effective at taking over state institutions and, and, and functions in a way that's undemocratic. So I think all the trends are in, in the wrong direction with, with Turkey. Kemalism, you know, and, and the three pillars of, uh, of Westernism, secularism, and nationalism have been warped in a way into an Islamist nationalist ideology with the AKP uh, that, that is inherently anti-Western. And what I, what I would try to explain to my Turkish friends uh, when I was national security advisor is, hey, consider all the countries that made anti-Americanism central to their propaganda efforts internal to their countries, and where did they end up? You know, it's not a pretty picture. So I, I think that we ought to be working very aggressively at cultivating positive relationships with Turkish entities that are not under Erdogan's wing of the AKP. And as you know, the AKP itself is not monolithic or homogeneous. And in a post-Erdogan era, we, we want to have good relationships with, you know, with, with leaders within the AKP, but also maybe even especially in, in other political parties and, and in civil society and, and, and business to business uh, relationships are going to be important. Turkey is in many ways acting against this interest because you know 80% of his trade is with is with Europe and this this idea of buying like S400 missiles from Russia that then could result in the imposition of, of US sanctions i mean it's just it just doesn't seem rational i think that's because it's not rational it is in large measure ideological we've talked a little already about Iran Turkey Saudi Arabia how do you assess the trump record overall on the Middle East, and what about the battle against Islamic State and extremists? And say something, if you could, about the normalization agreements between Israel and the UAE, Bahrain, and Sudan. Right. So I, I think the acceleration of the campaign to defeat ISIS was was positive, as has been the sustained engagement uh, in Iraq and 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 engagement in Iraq that was in support of uh, of Iraqi sentiments against. The, the complete alignment with Iran and the loss of Iraq, loss of Iraqi sovereignty uh, to, to Iranian infiltration and subversion of the Iraqi state. 
I think that's been a, a positive policy. As I mentioned, I think the, the approach to Iran overall has been a positive policy. I think with the, you know, the strike against uh, Abu Mahdi al-Mohandas and, and Qasem Soleimani, I think that was the righteous use of violence against someone who was actively uh, generating uh, attacks against, against U.S. citizens and, and our interests in, in, in the region. And I think that's a positive in terms of Middle East policy. But what's a negative, Andrew, I think is a continuation of this narrative that the Middle East is just mainly a mess to be avoided and that our disengagement from the region would be an unmitigated good under the belief that, you know, it just can't get worse. But as we know, when you think it can't get worse in the Middle East, it, it actually can get worse. And so it's important, I think, to maintain our commitment to working with the Syrian Democratic Forces, for example, in, in, uh, in eastern Syria uh, as a way to maintain influence. To, to help uh, get to a, a resolution uh, of, the, of the Syrian civil war and addressing its humanitarian crises and, and then also limiting uh, Iranian influence in, in a post-civil uh, war Syria. And it's, it's also important to remain engaged in Syria and in Iraq to complete the defeat of ISIS. I mean, we should learn from December 2011 that when you, when you leave a, a war, you know, one side disengages, that doesn't mean the, the competition is, is over. I would say another positive aspect, though, of, of the approach to, to the region has been this, this cultivation of the relationship between Israel and the Gulf states under the recognition that their security interests are in broad alignment. And I, I love the Abraham Accords because of the name, because the name communicates to our, you know, to our, our friends in the, in the region that we are all people of the book. It is, an, it is important in connection with, with limiting Iran's ability to continue its four-decade-long proxy war, but it's also important in, in removing sources of ideological support from jihadist terrorist organizations who want to portray their criminal and political agenda as a war uh, of religion, when in fact, of course, we know that the vast majority of, of victims of these terrorists are, are fellow Muslims. Let's talk a little more about U.S. policy toward Iraq, which you just mentioned, but I want to go back in time. I want to start almost 30 years ago when then Captain McMaster received the Silver Star for Valor for the Battle of 73 Easting. Now, obviously, a very successful, if not historic engagement. It's studied in war colleges, one of the decisive military campaigns of the 91 war. Tell us how that battle, I believe that was your first combat assignment and your first engagement in the region, shaped your thinking about Iraq and the Middle East? Well, thanks, Andrew. You know, I, I, I do write about this in the, in, in the book. In the introduction, I write about the battle. And then I, I, I write later uh, on the two chapters on the, the greater Middle East about our experience after the battle, which is, I think is even more significant, uh, in, 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 uh, in Or uh, and near Nazaria. Uh, or, of course, Or of the, of the Chaldees being Abraham's birthplace. And there's the there's a famous archaeological site there of, of the ziggurat and, and the catacombs associated with Abraham's uh, birthplace, you know, 4,000 years, years ago. We were right next to the Tulil Air Base and all the road to Baghdad. And of course, our, our cavalry troop, as you mentioned, during the Battle of 73 Easting, we had achieved a lopsided victory over, over the a Republican Guard Brigade and elements of, a, of an armored division and, and suffered, thankfully, no, no casualties uh, in, in that fight. But it was in the, in the occupation of southern Iraq uh, when, when I, I began to, to understand better how fractious and fragmented 
uh, Iraqi society had become under the brutality of, of Saddam's regime, especially how the Shia population in the south had suffered, uh, and, in, and in particular how Shia tribal leadership had had been had been affected, attacked really by the regime, uh, and and how difficult it would have been if we had gone to Baghdad to 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 really fashion a kind of post Ba'ath party government, and and. It was during that period of time when that that I changed my views. Initially, I was predisposed for well, let's just go to Baghdad and and Sam is is this bad of a guy, which he was. Let's let's uh, let's get rid of him just you know, right now. Uh, but when I went back to to the United States uh, on vacation after the war, uh, I wrote an op-ed for my local newspaper that was entitled "Why the U.S. Was Right in Not Taking Over All of Iraq," and it was because of the problems that we would encounter in a post-Saddam Iraq. I, and I mentioned in the op-ed, an insurgency, the empowerment of Iran, and how difficult it would be to achieve effective governance and rule of law uh, in a post-Bath Party Iraq, and how it would be a, require a commitment of, of many, many years uh, without any guarantee of, of success. You were back in Iraq um, 2004. You commanded the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment to retake the Iraqi town of Talafar from terrorists. And this campaign was both successful and became uh, a kind of model for counterinsurgency efforts as the U.S. pivoted to the surge strategy a few years later. At this time, you also write in the book about how you became close to then Member of Parliament, later Iraqi Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi. Tell us about Talafar, your experience there, and what it taught you continuing this experience you, you've had with Iraq now on another combat mission about Iraq and counterinsurgency warfare in the region. Well, thanks, Andrew. You know, Talafar uh, was, was really, I think, representative of all of the problems of Iraq in, in microcosm when we, when we got there in, in, uh, in, in 2005. And you know, I, I had the opportunity to, to serve uh, on General John Abizade's staff between 2003 to 2004. So I traveled to Iraq multiple times and, and, and to Afghanistan as well. And in the course of, of traveling to Iraq, I'd, I'd met uh, parliamentarian Hyder al-Abadi uh, and, and you know, forged a relationship with him, saw him again before as our regiment shifted from the South Baghdad area, the Mabadiya, Ludafia, Yusufia area, uh, up to Nineveh province, centered on, on Talafar. And, and as we got to the, the area, we asked, we asked really first order questions. What is the nature of the, the conflict here? What is driving the violence? And what we found, what we found is that ongoing there was a cycle of sectarian violence that had permitted Al-Qaeda in Iraq to portray itself as patrons and protectors of, of Sunni uh, Arab and Sunni Turkmen communities who feared complete evisceration at the hand of, at the hands of what they believed was an Iranian-dominated, hostile Shia government uh, and, and militias, tribal militias that it was employing against them. And so, what that allowed is it allowed Al Qaeda in Iraq to, to launch a massive offensive across Nineveh province, uh, and then to gain control in large measure of, of Talafar, except for a small Shia neighborhood that had barricaded itself in the southwest portion of the city. And what we found was really a dystopian environment in, in, in which Al-Qaeda was, was, was carrying out the most egregious acts against the, the Shia population and in mixed neighborhoods of the city. And, and while then the reaction was for Shia militias, many of which had, were, you know, were, were evident and, and, uh, and members of the police force, 
were conducting retribution attacks against the Sunni Arab communities and, and Sunni Turkmen communities. And so this cycle of violence uh, was, was accelerating. And what was needed is, is a method to break that cycle of violence. So what we did is we, we partnered in, with, with courageous uh, Iraqi forces who we trained with and, and helped improve their combat effectiveness. And we conducted a, a large-scale offensive in Talafar after evacuating the civilian population. Uh, we killed hundreds of the enemy. We captured uh, about a thousand uh, additional across Nineveh, across Nineveh uh, province. Uh, and then by breaking that cycle of violence, we could get to the next step, which is to put into place mediating mechanisms that brought communities together, that, that restored confidence in, in reformed security forces, police in particular. Uh, and, then, and then what happened, Andrew, is we saw life come back to the city. It was a phenomenal change. You know, schools that have been closed for over a year opened. Marketplaces were thriving. You know, where, where the streets had been empty, now there were children out playing and you could hear laughter. And, and it was just immensely rewarding for us to see this, this dramatic, you know, this dramatic change and, and to see life come back to the city. And, and uh, we were immensely proud of what we accomplished. It, it convinced me as I worked later in Washington and then back in Iraq that the surge had to first address this cycle of sectarian violence and to help forge a political accommodation between Iraq's communities that removed support for extremist organizations, terrorist organizations, and militias that were perpetuating the cycle of violence. We, there need to be emphasis on capable security forces, but security forces that were viewed as legitimate by, by, by the population. And, and we also needed to ensure that, you know, that, that improvements in governance would deliver services on a non-sectarian basis and to bring Iraqis back together. I, I think that's still the challenge for the Iraqi government today. I believe that Iran wants to keep Iraq perpetually weak by applying the Hezbollah model to Iraq, by affecting capture over state institutions and, and, and functions, to have a weak Iraqi government that is dependent on Iran for support while it grows militias, the Hashtashabi, these other uh, groups, the PMF forces, uh, other militias, um, to have Hezbollah groups and so forth, uh, um, AAH groups that, that can be turned against the Iraqi government if the Iraqi government acts against Iranian interests. This is the, this is the, the problem that Mustafa al-Khadami faces, the current prime minister and, and other leaders in, in, in Iraq who want to make Iraq strong, who want Iraq to emerge from these crises of recent decades and, and, and give the Iraqi people the future that they deserve. So I think that requires sustained commitment by the United States, but sustained commitment with the recognition that Iran is continuing to actively subvert the Iraqi state. And if the Iraqi state succumbs to it, of course, this is what allows groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS to, to remain strong and, and, to, and to regain popular support. Are you optimistic about Iraq's future? I mean, optimism in Iraq is maybe it's difficult for the same sentence sometimes, but I am. I am. I In the long term, yes. I mean, Iraq is not naturally aligned with Iran. I mean, Iraqis don't want to sign up for Vlad al-Fakih, you know, the rule of the jurisprudence. They don't want to be subservient to the supreme leader of, of Iran. But what it's going to take, it's going to take to bring, to bring Iraqis together. It has to, it's going to take generating the political will to take on these interconnected problems of sectarianism and corruption. You know, I, I quote my, my friend and former Prime Minister Haidel al-Abadi in, in, uh, in the chapter 
on, on what do we do uh, about this this really sectarian civil war that's manifest across the greater Middle East. And when he made the observation, he said, you know, corruption and sectarianism go together. And, and I think that it's really, you see that in Lebanon, of, of course, in dramatic fashion as that country is in free fall with the, the collapse of its, its financial uh, system. And I, I think you see that certainly with the, you know, with the Assad regime. Uh, and you see that with what Iran has been trying to do through their Houthi proxies in, in Yemen uh, as well. So I, I think it's important for the whole region to recognize this threat and to work together to overcome it. In your book, you come back to the concepts of strategic narcissism and the U.S. approach to the region and the lack of what you call strategic empathy, and that's often affected our policies there. Um, do you think the U.S. Is, is learning in terms of its approach to the Middle East after this engagement with Iraq and the region over the previous decades? Andrew, uh, not yet. <laughs> and I, I'm concerned about this, right? Because I, I think that that there is a, there, there is a, a constituency in both political parties that do, that, that do see the, the Middle East as mainly a mess to be avoided and see our disengagement there as an unmitigated good. I think that it's fair to say that the Bush administration underappreciated the, the risks and costs of, of action when they invaded Iraq, when we invaded Iraq in 2003. But I think it's also fair to say that the Obama administration and the Trump administration both have underestimated the risks and costs of disengagement uh, from, from the region. And, and, uh, and I, I think that we, what we need is to, to be able to make a sustained, a case for a sustained commitment, not a massive commitment in, in, uh, in the region or even, even a preponderantly military uh, commitment, but a sustained diplomatic engagement in the region to help to help the region get through these crises. I mean, I think the the Abraham Accords are an example of how American diplomacy can play a, a positive role uh, in the region. And and so I, I think that what we have to be able to do better is explain to the American people what is at stake. And I think what is at stake are are, are really certainly our security interests, problems that originate in the Middle East. Of course, don't stay confined to the Middle East. We see that with this. The humanitarian catastrophe associated with, you know, these serial episodes of mass homicide that is the the Syrian civil war, and the rise of ISIS, and now that generated a refugee crisis that affected countries in the region, certainly the people who had to flee, but also that affected Europe in a way, um, in in a significant way in terms of in terms of uh, political polarization within Europe over over the refugee issue. And then, of course, if jihadist terrorists, the, the organizations that are based in the Middle East, if they enjoy a safe haven and support base, as did Al-Qaeda when it controlled territory the size of Great Britain, can be a very grave threat uh, across the, the world. So I, I think that explaining what is at stake to the American people, but then also explaining how a sustained approach to the region can, can, be, can, can produce positive results. First, by breaking the cycle of sectarian violence, and then, and then evolving toward a, a new form of governance in, in the region that gets beyond the serial failures, right, of, of, of colonialism, uh, of the Arab monarchies, uh, of, of the, you know, the socialist Arab nationalist uh, dictatorships, um, uh, and, and, now, and now, of course, uh, you know, the, the failure of, uh, of Islamist uh, movements as well. So I, I think that the, the region is, is overdue for, you know, for, for a, a improvements in, in these areas, and U.S. partnership uh, ac across the region can be enforced for good.
you anticipated my next question. You, you've made a strong case today and you make a strong case in your book uh, that the U.S. needs to stay engaged. Do you think it's possible to muster domestic support for such engagement when there are voices now on both the right and the left calling for an end to endless wars? Yes, because these, these so-called you know, endless wars are actually commitments that are much smaller in scale, obviously, than they were at the height of the wars in, in places like Iraq and, and in Afghanistan. And what we have found is we are working now with, with partners who are bearing the brunt of, of the fight uh, against enemies of all civilized peoples. I mean, Iran has done immense damage uh, across the Arab world. And and Iran and working with partners who 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 are want to save their countries, you know, from the pernicious threat of the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, I think it's 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 worth giving them our support. And also, of course, it is it is the countries in the region that are bearing the brunt of the fight against jihadist terrorist organizations, well, which I believe is essentially the modern day frontier between barbarism and and civilization. I think it's worth pointing out in Afghanistan, for example, while. Ten American soldiers have have made the ultimate sacrifice and given the last full measure to to protect all of us from jihadist terrorists. Uh, that about 30 Afghan security forces, police, and, and and army give their lives every day to preserve the freedoms that the Afghan people have enjoyed since 2001. And I, I think it's I think that is what's most important is for the United States to stay engaged with those who are trying to be- build a better future. For generations to come, but and, and as we know from you know the COVID nineteen pandemic, Andrew, your know, problem sets and, and challenges that that develop overseas can only be dealt with at exorbitant cost once they reach our shores. Finally, I wanted to um, end on a kind of personal note. I was pleased to see that you hold the Fuad and Michelle Ajami chair at the Hoover Institution. Fuad Ajami was on my dissertation committee at Johns Hopkins SICE. Uh, how did he influence you in your thinking about the region? You know, I, I think because he is he is such a humane person, you know, and he is an empathetic person. Fuad, I, I think, had, had deep concern for the peoples in the re, of the region and understood the interconnected nature of the politics, the social. The, 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 and the religious and, and ideological dynamics across across the region better than than anyone. And he, what he could do is is distill his understanding of the complex environment in the most elegant prose. Uh, and he was such a gracious man, Andrew. I know you know this as a as a former student of his. He he was he was a professor in in the true sense of the word. He's he's someone that. That, that didn't feel as if he needed to accompany you on your life's journey, journey to tell you exactly what to do, but he was someone who helped you cope uh, with challenges that, that you encountered because he had taught you how to think, how to think about those complex challenges. So I, I miss him tr- tremendously, and, and it is such a great honor to hold a chair that is in his name. And you know, he has so, many, so, so, so much wisdom. You know, he, uh, Hoover, the Hoover Institution here uh, just published uh, posthumously, his his book on Saudi Arabia entitled Crosswinds, a book that he had ready to go, but of course then he fell ill, uh, and and the Arab Spring happened, and events moved faster than he, than he could complete the manuscript. I'm glad to see it published. Uh, there's wisdom in that book as there is in all of his books. I 
I used it to make this case for sustained engagement in the in the Middle East uh, in an essay that, that I, I did recently. I, I used a, a quote from Fawad, and it's very simple, uh, but but elegant and insightful. <laughs> and the quote is, it, it is not a fast part of the world. And so I, I think what we need is a sustainable, long-term approach to the Middle East that helps the peoples of the region secure the future that they deserve the future that is important to, to all humanity. Well said. Before we sign off, I just want to encourage our listeners to read Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. We have just been talking about the sections on the Middle East, but HR, you literally cover the world in that book, and the book is also testimony to your distinguished record of service to our country. Thank you for joining us today on On the Middle East. Andrew, what what a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. We will be right back after this short break with a few brief closing remarks and takeaways from our conversation with H.R. McMaster. I'm Ben Kaspit, I'll monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I am glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders, and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel Al Monitor. Welcome back. A few takeaways from our conversation just now with Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. I especially appreciated his reflections on how his experiences in both Iraq wars informed his approach to Iraq and the region and how the U.S. is still learning to avoid what he calls the traps of strategic narcissism, that is, seeing the region as we, the United States, wants to see it, rather than as it is, and the need for more strategic empathy, that is, viewing the region through the eyes of the people there. Thank you all for listening to On the Middle East, and thanks to our production team of Phil Colabro of El Monitor and Beowulf Rochlin of Two Square Media Productions. We will be back next week, and in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other El Monitor podcast, On Israel, at your favorite podcast platform. Music.